get the message across. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word again. Thank you um, that we have a chance this morning again to open it. Um, it's a little warm in here, and so we're easily distracted with other things too. But I just pray that you would would draw our attention now to the truths of the scripture. Uh, this is a marvelous, marvelous text. Scripture that we're in, uh, there's so much meat here. It's, it's uh, I feel like we're just getting a small sample in a large butcher shop. But, um, I just pray that you would help us to to get the truth out of this that you want us to have a lesson to learn. And I would thank you for uh, for this full and complete package of salvation that you offer. And uh, I pray that not only here at Blue Ridge, but as Larry said in his prayer, other places where your word is open, that that the real and full gospel would be unveiled and, and, and deshrouded, if I could coin a phrase, because it seems like Satan works hard to make sure people see, if they see anything, they only see part of it. And I pray that we would see the full glory of the Father in the face of Jesus be transformed uh, by your grace day by day, moment by moment until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name. Interesting how the Lord works. What Larry's been talking about this morning was kind of on his heart about being patient and waiting for God is our topic <laughs> this morning. Um, I want to start by reading this opening, I had to reduce it down quite a bit. It's eight-point font, so those of you with old eyes out there, apologize, get your readers on. But we'll, we'll read this entire thing from Harry Ironside, I think is his first name, right? H.A. Yeah. Ironside. I have his, um, basically his commentary. It's titled Addresses on the Gospel of John, and I've been consulting that a little bit as, as, as I study and I really liked what he said here in his address of chapter 11, particularly the verses we just got out of. But it, it you know, the verses we just got out of continue this flow into the verses we're in now, right? And, and, and that is uh, believing in God, letting God be God, being patient and waiting for him and letting him be in charge of the circumstances. Okay, so let me just, let's just read this together. So there was no hurry on the part of Jesus. Remember, this is when he was with his disciples, right? He's gotten, they've gotten news, Lazarus is sick. And it says in the text that he loved them, and so he, what, lingered two more days. So there was no hurry on the part of Jesus. That is so trying for us who profess faith in him. When we come presenting some problem, we hope that he will intervene immediately and answer our prayer in the way we would like to have him do it without any delay. Right, Larry? Exactly what you said. We will pray and we expect, you know, open our eyes and boom, there's the answer. But often he seems to wait so long and apparently appears to be so indifferent. He is never indifferent. He is never, he is always interested. And we may be sure of this, if he permits delay in the answer to prayer, 
It is because there is some plan that he desires to work out in connection with that answer, and it should be ours to wait in faith for him to act. You know scripture speaks of waiting on God and waiting for God. It is a wonderful thing to learn to wait on God, but then it requires even more faith to wait for God. After you have presented your petition to God, just leave everything in his hands, assured that in his own good time, he will act in the way that is best. Yeah. Let, let those words sink in. You know, I don't know if, if, if everybody's just, just read that on your own. I, I wanted to type that all out because sometimes reading it, meditating on it is good. But yeah, he's, he is spot on. He's spot on. And I, I think that is, that is really the message of chapter 11. Is, is, is we're going to see that here in our notes. The word belief is the key word here. The word belief is the key word. And, and, and we think we have belief until our belief is, our faith is tested, right? And God says, okay, let me throw you a curveball that you're not expecting. Let me wait when you think I should be acting. Let me move quickly when you are you think I'm going to delay? Yeah. Okay. Let me break out of. Let me break out of this little box that you have put me in, and see how you respond. Because, and this is the thing that's really been challenging me, again, is to face this question: What God am I really worshiping? If Jesus looks more like me than he does the Father, I have a false Jesus. And I think that's the real heart of this chapter is, do you believe the Jesus that God sent or the one of your own making? Before you quickly dismiss that as, oh, well, it's obvious, it may not be as obvious as we think, right? Because these moments, these times when God seems to wait, when he seems to delay, when, when, when the answer that you're looking for is not the one you got. It's in those times that your faith is tested and we see what it really is all about. Right? And more importantly, what you see. Paul admonishes believers to constantly be see, testing themselves to see if they be in the Testing yourself to be sure you're in the faith. And I don't think, you know, I think he means, of course, to be sure that you're saved, that God is working in your heart. But also, I think for us as even, even for us as believers who who are sins, who've been justified in, in heaven, but are being sanctified now, we can still drift, just like his disciples do, often off of the, the path. We, we we stray very easily off of the path of knowing Jesus for who he really is and substituting a false Jesus for what we want him to be. Okay. And, and that's, that's huge, huge, huge. Disciples struggle with that. And we see that in the gospel of John. We're going to see that a lot when we get into the upper room discourse, when he lays it out to them, as I told the Jews before, I say to you now where I, I'm leaving and where I'm going, you can't come. That just devastates them. 
because they were absolutely sure the kingdom was about to come. And he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting. They believed he was the Messiah. They got that right. But what he did and how he did it was a complete shock to them. It was very hard for them to swallow. In fact, as I'm studying this more and more, I'm convinced that really it's God holding on to us that matters. You believe because he holds on to you. Thank boy. That's true. Otherwise, they would have fallen away right along with Judas. <coughs> and so would you. All right. So, some strong words. But I really liked that, that quote from, from Harry Ironside. It really germane to, to this stuff. Okay. So, um, let's go through our notes here. Of course, this is titled, I Am the Resurrection and the Life. Um, because that's, you know, as, I've, as we've been encountering these sayings of Jesus, these I am sayings of Jesus, um, I've been tiling the notes with that. And I, I didn't put our little table in here. I had a table last time that kind of showed us where we are in the sayings. And I didn't do that this time because the notes were getting kind of long. And I try to keep it on, on one page, you know, physically one page, if not, you know, so we don't have two possible, but I, I hope in the next one to have that table so you can see where we are on that little roadmap. But this this statement right here, I am the resurrection of life, is an amazing two-verse summary of all that's been said in John. Okay? If you're looking for the condensed version, that's it. 25 and 26 are it, okay? And, and there's so much there. And so we have a second section here resolving the apparent contradiction. And, uh, and, then, and then a belief in, belief in chapter 11 kind of continues with that because in three times in these two verses, 25 and 26, he mentions the word belief or believe, okay? Do you believe this? Um, Okay, and uh, so we'll, we'll unpack all that. But the first thing I want us to look at is resurrection in the Old Testament. Um, this comes from Martha's saying to Jesus there. Um, look at verse 24 and verse 23, back up for a second. I know we're kind of jumping ahead here, but I, I want to sort of lay the groundwork as we, before we get into the text. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. The tendency sometimes, I guess because of, of all our other kinds of reading that we do, you know, we read, we read stuff all the time. You're reading quick things on something pops up on the screen on TV. You know, you may read it, you know, uh, watching a movie. It's got CC, you know, closed captioning or whatever. Uh, you read that kind of quick. We read articles in the in the paper or on a phone or something real quick the bible you don't want to do that you want to slow down you want because you'll read past something that's a very profound and you'll not even it's wanting to sink in right this is one of those verses um this is not necessarily hugely profound profound but it is interesting because and this is the point the first point i'm trying to make on our notes here is how did she know that Remember, she doesn't have anything in the New Testament. 
front of her, right? She doesn't know any of what we know in the New Testament about uh, the rapture or about um, the second coming of Christ, the future resurrection for judgment, the great white throne. She didn't know any of that. So how did she know that her brother was going to rise from the dead? So I did a, did a quick study on what the Jews knew about resurrection. Um, and, and there's some really good material. I found a great article, a really short, easy read um, from Master Seminary on that and some other things out there. <clears throat> um, and I'll leave that to you to, to research if you're interested. Uh, so let's read this together. The first, the first section here is resurrection in the Old Testament. In her conversation with Jesus, Martha, bring, gives, Martha gives us some insight into what the Jewish people believe concerning resurrection. This is not to say that all Jewish people believe this equally. We know that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Remember that, right? <clears throat> but the Pharisees and many God-fearing Jews believed it, okay? And I put four texts down there. When I, when I looked up, uh, probably like you, you just you sort of remember in passing, oh yeah, those Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. I was amazed at how many times it says that in the Bible, in the New Testament. Four different places it mentions the Sadducees did not believe this. They also didn't believe in angels. Uh, they, I think that's probably why they had a really hard time explaining Jesus' miracles. They basically <laughs> sort of completely shut down any and all supernatural. I don't know what in the world they believed, but anyway. Uh, so there, there's your text. You can look that up. They didn't believe in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did. And that Acts 23, 8 makes that clear. It says the Sadducees don't believe that there is a resurrection, but the Pharisees do believe that or did believe it, okay? And Paul uses that to his advantage, by the way, right? <laughs> to get them arguing. It's fun. It's a fun text. Read that again. Okay, so how did they know this? Those who, those, in other words, those Old Testament Jews, if you will, how did they know about the resurrection? Here are some of the more, most prominent Old Testament scriptures on the subject, okay? So, um, Let's see. Uh, let's have my wife read the first one there, Job. The first one there in the notes. In the notes. Do you want me to read? Is the verse already in the notes? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. For I know that my Redeemer lives, yeah. and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart thanks the Lord. Okay, thank you. Dad, do you want to read the next one? Yeah, Daniel says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some everlasting light, and some shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, good, thank you. And uh, Erica? The dead shall live. So you've heard, you've probably heard most of these, if not all these texts, particularly the one in Job, right? <clears throat> the, um, the Messiah contains uh, a song that, that Handel wrote that kind of makes this text famous. Um, 
And then the one in Daniel is, is also well known. The one in Isaiah, maybe not quite as much, but it, it definitely says, says that. Okay, so there are texts here that clearly say there is a coming resurrection. The dead will live again. Um, so uh, let's continue reading in the notes. Okay, encourage everybody to follow along in the notes. Okay. Additionally, there is confidence expressed by both Abraham, Genesis 22.5, and David, Psalm 17.15, that resurrection is a reality. The one in Genesis there refers to, that's the, the verse where he says, I and the young man are going to go to the mountain, worship, and then we, we, and say, I will return to you. He says, we will return to you. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Abraham reckoned that God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Okay. Abraham fully intended to obey God, God's command to slaughter his, or to sacrifice his son, to kill him. And figured that God could raise him from the dead. Okay. So Abraham believed it, and David does as well. And you can read that Psalm. In fact, somebody, if you have that quickly, maybe Rick, uh, get that handy. Psalm uh, 17, 15. Okay, okay, good. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Okay. Um, I think he is speaking uh, metaphorically about um, about death, not not just, you know, like uh, just like Jesus says that, that Lazarus sleeps, right? So David is speaking about, about the resurrection there. The history of Israel also included some stories of God resurrecting dead people, such as the resurrection of the widow's son by Elijah. That's 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24, right? And you guys are familiar with that story. It seems that they understood there to be one resurrection at the end of time for judgment of some and reward for, for others, and that this involved, this revolved around the coming of the Messiah. However, they do not seem to understand that Messiah himself will be resurrected as the first fruits of the bodily resurrection. Um, so Rick, can you turn to 1 Corinthians 15? Let's all turn there. Let's Let's look at this real quick because this answers a question that I have had uh, in the past or just something that I've pondered and uh, maybe you have as well too, okay? So um, if you would start with verse 20 and then read down to verse 23, please. For Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came to a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also to a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ is the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Can you read one point? <coughs> yeah, that's fine. Read one point, you said? No, that's fine. I stopped it. So Christ the first fruits, then at his, his coming, those who belong to Christ. Okay. 
the question that I wondered is, wait a minute, how can Jesus be the first fruits if Lazarus was resurrected before Jesus? Or if the widow's son, remember last time in the notes I referenced briefly, at least two other resurrections that we know Jesus performed from the other gospels, right? And then you go back in the reference here in, in, in uh, um, was it first Kings, right? 17, where Elijah resurrects, uh, of course the Lord does it, but does it through Elijah, but the, her, the widow's son was resurrected as well. How can Jesus be the first fruits here in, in chapter 15? Okay. How does that make him the first fruits, though? He wasn't resurrected first. Well, he existed before they did. Yeah, but he wasn't resurrected first. Well, it doesn't matter in God's timeline if it's all it's all the same. Okay. It doesn't really matter what order happened in. Even though it says first, it's not really first, but it's first anyway. Yes. Okay. Because Jesus was gonna go to the cross and die for sins and they already existed before all these other people, so One possibility. Anybody agree, disagree? Other ideas? The terminology that is used in first fruits is also a harvest. Bringing the harvest to the first fruits. Not that that's what it says, but it is the first harvest. You're trailing off. Well, you say? I just think it's for that it's a promise that there is resurrection. I don't use the form of it. Those that are going to follow this train, and he is the one that is paid the way. He's the first fruits. He's the first of the fruit of resurrection. Yes, clearly, that's what that means, but it doesn't answer the. I mean, I appreciate that. I'm not, I'm not picking on you, but I'm just, what I'm, what I'm saying is, well, yes, and that, that's a great the, exposition. First fruits, you know, we had a cherry tree. All the rest of them died. Say that again. No, all the, the others, they all died. Ah. Okay. That's interesting. <clears throat> yeah. um, I think that's the key. Because, and, and, and I, I'm glad you said that, because that helps us draw out what is really going on here. And I think this is what Paul is explaining in chapter 15, uh, chapter 15. Look again at what he says. So start up with verse 20. I really should have said verse 20 on our notes here. 20 through 23. But in fact, watch this now. Look, look in your text. Verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's that metaphor again. We'll talk about that here in a second. For as by one man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It doesn't mean that the all who are in Adam are also all in Christ. It just means that the all who are in Adam, of the all who are in Adam, some will be in Christ. And those all 
now who are in Christ will be resurrected. Does that make sense? In the sense of what Paul means here. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. Notice this. Paul goes out of his way to say that there is an important chronology. So while Martha and other Old Testament saints knew generally that God had the power to raise the dead and would do that at some point, they didn't know the specifics of how that was going to work out like we do now because of teaching like this in the New Testament, okay? So one, one illustration, that I, you know I like uh, uh, astronomy. I have to slow down because sometimes I'll say astro astrology. I don't like that, but I do like <laughs> astronomy, okay? And um, a few, a couple of years ago, we had a probe uh, called New, New Horizons that went past Pluto. Remember that? And we got some, for the first time in the history of mankind, we got some really clear, vivid pictures of this dwarf planet. <laughs> okay. Uh, some are, when I was a kid, it was nine planets, right? But then it got demoted down to a, a dwarf planet, a mini planet, largest object in the Kepler belt, whatever. Okay. Up to that point, if you see any of the images that we had of Pluto, they're pretty pathetic. I mean, we know there's an object there. We know it because of the gravitational effect on the objects around it. And we even had some, some really blurry images that look like, you know, uh, a, a kid taking maybe two or three colors of paint and smashing it on a piece of paper, you know, on a, with their thumb, you know, just sort of, you know, a little splotch, a very blurry splotch. And, and uh, but when we got those really clear pictures, there was a there were a lot of surprising aspects of Pluto they had no idea about right and and of course they have trouble explaining its origin as they do all the rest of the bodies of the solar system <laughs> apart from God all right so it's kind of like that for the Old Testament saints they see it they know that it's there but it's this kind of blurry thing but what Paul is telling us here and I think this is the answer to a question I, I thank you for saying that Dad because I think that's the key. Christ is the first verse. Look again in verse 23. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. But each in his own, what? Order. Oh. So the resurrection is not just this big one blob mass, you know? Okay. You like my sound effects? <laughs> that's what it's going to sound like when you come out of the tomb. <laughs> no. Okay. It's not just this big poof okay and it's done but there is a chronology that so so just like in the old testament it wasn't clear these two comings of the messiah separated by a church age the age of the gentiles and so forth wasn't clear okay so also this doctrine of the resurrection wasn't clear as well so paul is helping us understand that god has phases of his resurrection that are going to happen. It's all one, it's all a resurrection, and it will happen to everybody, but it will happen in the in the time that God wants it to happen. Not all at once, but over a period of time. And that's important to understanding what he means by calling Christ the first fruits. Okay. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Okay. 
Paul is uh, specifically concerned here not with the resurrection of the unbelievers. And he's not denying that either. He's just focusing on the, the resurrection of believers, particularly to give them hope in the context of false teachers who were trying to lead them astray by saying there is no resurrection. Okay, does that make sense? So Paul's restoring their hope in their own resurrection in Christ. So here's the key, sports fans, let's know. Why is Christ the first, first fruits when others, like Lazarus, have been resurrected ahead of him? And that hit the nail on the head when he said, those who were resurrected, what? Died again later. Lazarus is not living on earth now. Okay? Yeah, but what about all the Old Testament people? They've died. Aren't they resurrected in heaven? Not in the sense of getting their new bodies. Does it mean we'll have a new body now? No. no. I thought once you die, you basically got your new body and you're going to heaven. No. What are you just no, just don't have a body that can come into this realm. Oh, is that all it is? You have some kind of body then. Jesus had a body that could live and, and interact in this realm, in this world, right? But also could ascend to the Father in that body. He didn't leave that body here at the ascension, post-resurrection, right? He took it with him into heaven. He is the first one to have this new, I call it body 2.0, this new body, okay? And those who are in Christ will also, at, in God's time, at a later time, receive the same type of body. That's why he's called the first fruits, not because he was the first one resurrected, but because he's the first one resurrected never to die again with this new recreated body that is fit for living with God in eternity. Okay. Now, I don't pretend to understand all of the details related to this. There's still a lot of mystery, and, and my wife hit on a lot of that. You know, what happens, you know, Warner, is, is, does he have a body, you know, is it a heavenly body? When we read Revelation, we see that they do have bodies. They, they have something to wear robes on, right? So you've got a body. You're not some mist floating around but best that i can tell is they don't have a body that is suited to translate here into this world and, and interact with this world just like we don't have a body now that can you can't just transport into the presence of god right now right if you do you're this body is staying behind and you're going your soul is going okay um does that make sense some somewhat But we are coming back to this earth, and we're coming back with new bodies that will interact with it. And by the way, uh, God will reign on this earth. Jesus will reign on this earth, and he will straighten the mess out. The earth itself is not the problem. It's the sinful world systems that are the problem, right? And the unseen forces of the God of this, this world in whose lap the world resides, okay? So the things that disappoint us about this world not, not necessarily creation, although it is cursed and, and there are hurricanes and tragedies and so forth that, that are disappointing. 
like that limb that fell on that car and killed that man a week or so back. Um, there are those natural things that happen, but our, our disappointment really with this world is human sin, right? The human sinful systems inspired by the devil. But Jesus is going to come back and, and reign, and then this world, as we know it, will be destroyed, and a new earth will be created. But heaven is on earth, ultimately. We will be on earth. Okay. So when you say, we're leaving, I can't wait to leave this world, be careful what you say. Be careful you know what you mean when you say that. Remember that world can mean more than just the physical world. All right. So uh, that's resurrection. Uh, let's let's continue reading our last couple of sentences there in this first section. However, they do not seem to understand that Messiah himself will be resurrected as the first fruits of the bodily resurrection. Notice that I'm trying to be clear, the bodily resurrection. Nor did they fully understand that there also needs to be a spiritual resurrection for those whom God is saving. Martha is about to find out, however, as indeed, as indeed the resurrection and giving of eternal life is in the power of the one standing before her. So he reveals to her some clarity in this statement about resurrection that she didn't know. And I would venture to guess, now we've you've heard me say it several times already, we've talked about it, so it's probably not maybe as a shock to you, but I would venture to say that 90, I'd be so bold to say that 90 plus percent of people who have attended church for quite a while probably don't know this either. They don't know this either. When they hear the term resurrection, they think there's one resurrection. When in fact, there are two. Okay. There are two resurrections. There are two resurrections. You will hear in a minute. I hope. That's why we're going through this. <clears throat> okay. So, having said that, let's go on to the next section. Resolving the quote unquote contradiction of verses 25 to 26. Somebody uh, go back to John now. Okay. John 11. And let's continue. Reading, remember we started in verses 23 and 24. Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection the last day. Now, Jesus steps in and says, Martha, let me tell you something about resurrection that you got. And here it is. Somebody read those two verses for us, please. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. I am the resurrection and the life. Believe in me to live even if he dies. Twenty-five and twenty-six. What we're talking. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Good. Thank you. Those two verses are the ones that we want to focus on. Twenty-five and twenty-six. Okay. Is everybody with me on the notes? Okay. It helps to have a visual in front of you. That's why. That's why I do this so that we can not only hear me, but see what we're saying. Because this is an important, important truth. Verses 25 and 26. In these verses, 
Jesus appears to make a confusing, if not contradictory, statement. He says on one hand that believers in him may die, but shall live again. Then on, in the same breath, he says that these same people will never die. How do we understand this? Do you see that? So stop there a minute. Look again at your verses there in your Bible. 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. It's a comma. It's not a period. It continues. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall, what? Never die. Well, which is it, Jesus? On the one hand, you say, those who believe in me, if they die, they'll, they'll live again. But then if they believe in me, they'll never die. You see that? You see that? <clears throat> Let's keep reading. This is confusing <clears throat> if you don't if you don't recognize the assumption many readers carry that there is only one resurrection that God performs, namely a bodily resurrection. Let me talk about this for just a second. Let's talk about assumptions. <laughs> this is fun. Um, there's a play on words for the definition of assumption. You know what it is? Makes an ass out of you and me. A-S-S-U-M-E is how you spell it, right? It's a humorous way, if it's maybe a little crude enough, you know, or, but we're, we live in the real world, okay? Um, it, it, it means it makes a fool out of you when you assume things are there that really aren't, right? And, and so it's, it's a good Bible study rule to remember. And I have to do that all the time. And, and not only, I guess maybe being in software development has, for 30 plus years, and having my head pounded again and again with this with this problem of assumptions that it's a big deal to me because I can't tell you how many times and and, and, and Rick with your troubleshooting background and, and all of us you know with all of us have have to solve problems with things sometimes right something isn't working right air conditioning not working today, right um, well what's going on you know and sometimes your assumptions can blind you to the solution and you don't even know that you have an assumption. That's the problem with them. If I could see my assumptions, I could say, oh yeah. But sometimes it, your brain has to work through it and you think, and you're like, what, what is going on here? You know, and I, I, do, this, I do this with computers and I'm, I'm banging my head against the screen for a whole day. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've learned over my career. Sometimes, sometimes I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting more and more frustrated with the problem trying to solve it, trying to figure out what's the root cause here. I see the symptoms, but I, can't, I don't know what the root cause is yet, what's really causing this. And, and I was like, oh, and I, and I don't want to because it's like a bulldog, I gotta solve this. No, I've learned to put it aside. Sometimes sleep on it, right? Sometimes just walk away for an hour or, or just go do something else for a minute, okay, for a little bit. Why? Because it gives your brain a chance to walk through the assumptions and, and sometimes you just kind of like like a, a like a rat going through a maze boom 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 you hit these different blind spots and then you notice over here an open door oh 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 
Now I've got the solution, right? But learning to see past your assumptions <clears throat> can be difficult, but it's an important discipline, especially for Bible study. Okay? And that was the case here for many years in this text for me. And when I stumbled on this apparent contradiction, I thought, man, what is he talking about? What, why, why does he say this apparently twice? And um, so let's go on. I think the key here is, is in assuming that he is referring only to one resurrection. However, if you allow for the possibility, is everybody with me on the notes? Back on the notes now. If you allow for the possibility that there are there are in fact how many two resurrections for believers, first spiritually and then bodily, this statement by Jesus begins to make perfect sense. The clue that this is what he means is by looking closer at the repeated idea that he is the resurrection and the life. He is not stuttering or repeating the same idea twice, but in fact referring to himself as the complete package for the full salvation of God. Not just of body with sins forgiven, but of a new heart, a resurrected inner soul. This is what he means in chapter 3 with the new birth. And in 525, by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Notice he doesn't say they all will hear. He just says some will hear and those who do hear will live. And in that context, he follows up by saying an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his, the voice of the Son of God and come out to judgment, right? So he calls in chapter 5, that's where this is really clear. He spells it out clearly in chapter 5. Read that context if you, if you still don't believe me, okay? Because he very clearly says an hour is coming and now is. In other words, it started with his coming and will continue. Um, uh, it's already present in which the Son of God is calling some. His voice is going out, but only some will hear. And those who hear will be resurrected to life, okay? And then there's coming a future time in which that same one will now call again. But everyone who are in the tombs, notice the distinction, right? He says first the dead, and then some of the dead will hear, but then all who are in the tombs, okay? Those are, that is a clear distinction that he's making to say all of those who are physically bodily dead will hear and be bodily resurrected. So even unbelievers, yes, will receive a resurrection but only one. Believers receive how many? Two. That is what being born again means. It's being resurrected again to life. Both of that, both of those metaphors, being born again and the second or the first resurrection for believers, the spiritual resurrection, are metaphors for the same thing. Theologians call this Regeneration, very good. <laughs> okay, regeneration. The Holy Spirit does this work of coming in, and that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in chapter 3, that the Holy Spirit is the one who, because who, he's like, 
I'm old. I can't go back in my mother's womb. How can this be, right? And, and Jesus effectively says it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit. It's nothing to do with going back into your mother's womb, which Nicodemus knew. He knew that, right? He was just he was just acknowledging that. He was just saying, I, I understand. I can't go back. So there has to be a different method other than normal, natural first birth. And so Jesus says, this is something that the Holy Spirit does. And the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates the heart of the believer. That means, listen, that means that the gospel, the full plan, the full plan, that's why I stress that word full, full plan of salvation means far more than just having your sins forgiven in Christ. And I don't mean to demean that. That's huge. But that's not all that you need. You need to have the root, as we say in software, um, you know, in, in troubleshooting, and I'm sure you probably the same thing, what's the root cause, right? I see the symptoms. So what we call sin, a lot of times, are really the symptoms. You know, lust and, and, and murder and, and hatred of other people, selfishness and lying, all of those things that we call sins that, that Jesus had to die for. I, I've started in my own vocabulary, starting to call those transgressions to distinguish it from sin, okay, a sinful nature. But we can use the term sins, and we say Jesus died for my sins. Okay, yes, he did. He died for those transgressions. But that's not enough, because if you go to heaven, if you die with your old heart still intact in the way that it was when you were first born, you haven't solved the root cause of those sins. Does that make sense? You've got to have this changed. And that's what makes the difference. Or believers versus unbelievers and that's what jesus has in mind here when he says i am the both the resurrection and the life see very important we'll talk more about that when we get to that text so he's not stuttering or repeating the same idea twice but in fact referring to himself as the complete package for the full salvation i'm trying to i'm trying to emphasize complete and full right god is not partially saving you and the rest is up to you Thank the Lord. Okay. This is why people have asked, and maybe you've wondered too, you know, when I get, will it be the sin in heaven? No. Why? Because God's taking care of the root cause, right? And anyone who goes to heaven with their old heart intact can't stay there. That's why he has to send them to hell somewhere else where they have to live apart from the presence of God because he will not live forever in a state of unrighteousness with unrighteousness around him in, among his people. He desires us to live righteously and he has to, the root cause of that is not just, oh, I gotta make up my mind and try really hard. No, I need a new nature, I need a new heart, I need new desires. This inner self, I have to change. And I can't do that, only he can do that. Super, super important. If you don't understand this, you don't understand the gospel, plain and simple, you just don't. Does it make sense? That's why I'm taking the time to go through it. And we will go through it again probably next week or sometime in the coming weeks. We'll probably stress this several times. It's very, very important because, you know, we, we, we're so steeped in this other way of thinking that we need to be brought back on track, right? Jesus is far more than you realize. Well, let's don't get to go to Yeah, because it's not up to you. 
Understanding this, even understanding this doesn't regenerate you. If you are regenerated, if, if the Holy Spirit, if you're born again, the Holy Spirit has resurrected you, um, you're, you're, you're on your way. Yeah, the disciples didn't understand this either. I guarantee you Martha didn't fully understand it when Jesus said it. Disciples had to unpack this later by the Holy Spirit. They understood it later.
and, and I have raised that issue with CEF over the years, and, and they have as well too, okay? So when you hear Nancy say what she's saying, understand that we know that at CEF, okay? If I did, if, if they if they didn't do this, I wouldn't be part of it, okay? Because we hear what they say, but then you remember Hunt turned around and he said, we're here to support the churches, right? And Nancy said that too, right? We're here to support churches. Why? And they do. They stress that a lot, you know, and when they go to all the churches and they dovetail with the churches like they're doing with us, uh, they say that again and again, we're here to help you because we're working together. Why? Because they understand exactly what you said, that that follow-up has to be there. And, and who's going to do that? CF isn't going to do that. We do that. So what we're praying for is professions during VBS that then we can follow up on and say, you need to come now. You need to be obedient to Jesus as Lord. And you need to follow up. Why? Because it's very possible if the Lord is working in some of these young hearts, we hope that he is, and maybe some of the old ones too, okay, that by coming to the church on a regular basis, they can get under the sound teaching of God's word. They can mingle in fellowship with us, and they can begin praying and acting like a Christian would. And then at some point down the road, in God's time, the Holy Spirit can use his word to really regenerate them. That's what we're hoping for. That's what we hope. But we understand my wife is exactly right, and it irritates me too. That's why I keep hammering this point. And by the way, if you listen to John MacArthur, it's the same way. Okay? <laughs> his, his whole ministry has been bringing the church back to the real gospel. You know, we stray over here, we stray over there, we stray. <sighs> Come back to the real gospel. Understand what God is really doing, what he says in his word, not what you want it to be. You know, and, uh, and, and you're right. Humanly speaking, though, it is good to show some numbers, and, and so I have no trouble with that. I, I She calls them salvations. Jason calls them professions. I like that term better. We got X number of professions. And, I, 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 and I'm going to stress that again in our next committee meeting, that we need to be very careful in our wording in CEF to say, listen, it needs to be professions, not salvations. You can, because even if the Get in the habit of saying that if the kids can hear that and think I'm saved, and they may not be. So, so drawing that distinction out there, I think, is important. Having said that, then though we're not limiting the Holy Spirit either, it's very, very possible that they may be regenerated. But like you said, we don't know. Uh, let's finish this, and we'll talk some. Believe me, we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. Okay, but let's finish this whole section here. We're actually out of time. Now, this is what he means in chapter 3 with the new birth and in 525 by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. A literal rendering of verses 25 to 26 could read this way. Okay, so what I did was I went back, I took these two verses and I went, you know, I'm not a Greek scholar <clears throat> by any means, <clears throat> but I went through the words in this statement and elaborated on them. I, I looked at Wiest, he's got a nice expanded translation. I looked at other translations to try to understand fully in the original language what it is that Jesus is saying in these two verses, okay? And so I want to read that here with you. It's a little awkward in the wording because it is a translation. But let's read that together. 
I, even I myself, am the standing up in bodily resurrection. Okay. So when he says, I am the resurrection, that's the, the Greek words have this idea. The root words have this idea of standing up, literally. Resurrection, the, the root for that means to stand up. Okay. And so that is a bodily resurrection he's referring to. When he says, I am, that is an exclusive statement, meaning I and I alone am the standing up in bodily resurrection in addition to the spiritual life in the heart. Okay. Don't miss that key word in, in our English Bibles, and, right? I am the resurrection and the life. It's not I'm the resurrection, comma, the life. He's not stuttering. He's not saying, um, he's not using Hebraic uh, poetic, you know, uh, syn uh, synonyms. Okay, I'll get it. Um, meaning the same thing twice okay that's not what he's doing the key word is in there so that's why i in this in this uh, translation here i'm saying in addition to okay because it's not just the bodily resurrection but he is also the spiritual resurrection spiritual life is integrated into this okay anyone having faith and confidence into me even if dead or dying, lives. Additionally, all those alive and also having faith and conviction into me, though dying or dead in this present age, shall not by any means pass over into death. Have you faith yourself? Okay. We will uh, we'll unpack that more later. Oh, okay. And we have somebody who needs to be admitted. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I had my hand up since the part that you were talking about assumptions. Just, just the HDMI and hit the button. HDMI channel. Channel says HDMI on it. So, the far left. Can I be heard here? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. It might have been a setting over there. Yeah, I had my hand up since the part you were talking about assumptions. I really um, appreciate that talking point because um, that, that really kind of played back things from the last couple of months uh, in my own life. Um, I had a, uh, a seminar with, with the PGA and I had this uh, teaching and coaching summit that I had to go in and you have to be critiqued and manipulated by by a, a person who's a life member, which means they've been in it for 25 years. And uh, the one thing that he mentioned to me so much uh, that that coach did mention to me when I was given this uh, seminar to 
kind of show what I know in the, in the teaching world. He sat there, he's like, Aaron, you're really good at diagnosing things. You're really good at wanting to make assumptions and to sit there and try to find all the, the probable causes to things, uh, all the symptoms, as you were saying. And that was actually the word he used, the symptoms. But he's like, don't be so quick to try to look at all the symptoms to figure out the primary cause because that you're just not going to do it. Uh, and it's going to run you in circles until you're dead. Um, and he's like, that's not the way to look at things. You kind of have to look at it from the probable cause and then work your way back to it. Um, and, and I struggle with that. I think uh, even in IT, I struggled with that, too. And you probably deal with it every day at work. Um, you, you're trying to get to the root cause of the problem. And so you, you come up with all these ideas and assumptions and look here and there, and you beat yourself to pulp to do it. And uh, we have to look at it kind of in a different light as well. When, when we read the word and we go out and we try to share the word of God with others, we can't try to put our own assumptions in the way uh, because it, it can make things really problematic uh, on our end of trying to share it as well as on their end of trying to understand it. Um, so I think that is a very important uh, point we need to be aware of. It's something you struggle with all your life. Good, thank you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you will help us with our assumptions, with those blind spots that we have, that we think we know something when we really don't know it like we ought to. So help us to, to be humble, to, to learn your word, uh, to not assume that we know as much as we think we do, but to, to be willing to let go of things that we thought were true for a long time that we learned otherwise, or maybe just some things that are standing in the way that we don't even realize are there. So thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the patience with which you work with us. Pray your blessing on the service now in Jesus' name. Thank mm -hmm. you.